Hello, everybody, and welcome. This is episode 38, part two of The Right Take. I'm Eric Lendrum. I'm Jacob Grandstaff. And for the first time ever, we had such a massive, very important and very in-depth main topic planned out for last week's episode. But unfortunately, we did not get to it. We did not manage to get to it in time to cover the main parameters of it and the background and the history of it in depth in a proper way that would have been done in a timely manner, but also a comprehensive manner. So we did, of course, episode 38, part one last week with each of our individual topics leading up to the main topic for this particular episode. And this involves something that happened about uh, almost two weeks ago now. It's something that has, of course, faded from memory, uh, still kind of in the midst of Afghanistan and also certainly in the midst of the, uh, the Mark Milley scandal we talked about last episode. But this is something that is extremely important, so, so important. And it is tragic. It is really upsetting what happened, but they were going to do it eventually, and they did it. On September the 8th, 2021, after, I think, 133 years, one of the largest, most beautiful, and most historic monuments in America was torn down by an authoritarian Virginia government. That is the statue of Robert E. Lee in Richmond, Virginia, which sat in the middle of a massive uh, traffic circle on a street known as uh, Monuments Avenue. And it was the center of many targets by vandals, by the left-wing terrorists known as Black Lives Matter and Antifa, who, of course, infamously defaced the monument. It's this massive pedestal, this gargantuan pedestal. It's the size of a building that was just spray-painted and covered with vulgar graffiti and anti-police graffiti and, of course, BLM and stuff like that. The statue itself, the bronze statue of General Lee atop his horse, itself was ultimately undamaged. But Ralph Northam, Governor Blackface, was intent on tearing it down for virtue signaling points. And it was a big legal battle because it was listed on the National Register of Historic Places. So several court rulings ultimately determined that the state government alone did not have the authority to tear it down. But then ultimately, the Supreme Court did grant the Virginia state government the authority to remove it. So it was removed by Crane and Northam scumbag, absolute scumbag. They couldn't even give the decency of just putting it in storage like a lot of these other things. They announced that they're going to cut that giant statue into three pieces and who knows what happens to them at that point. Like, they're just going to be scattered to the wind or whatever. And it's really depressing. Again, this topic was buried along among other stories. But, oh, this was too good to be true when I saw this. President Trump issued an extremely based and red-pilled statement on this issue. And I'm just going to read the whole statement because this whole thing is golden. We posted this on our gab. This is just too good to miss. September 8th, 2021, statement by Donald J. Trump, 45th president of the United States of America. Quote, Just watched as a massive crane took down the magnificent and very famous statue of Robert E. Lee on his horse in Richmond, Virginia. It has long been recognized as a beautiful piece of bronze sculpture. To add insult to injury, those who support this taking, he put taking in quotes, now plan to cut it into three pieces and throw this work of art into storage prior to its complete desecration. Robert E. Lee is considered by many generals to be the greatest strategist of them all. President Lincoln wanted him to command the North, in which case the war would have been over in one day. Fact, fact check, by the way, that is true. President Lincoln did approach Lee to take command of the Union Army, but Lee ultimately turned him down, saying he could not in good conscience take up arms against his home state of Virginia. It goes on to say, Robert E. Lee instead chose the other side because of his great love of Virginia. There it is. And except for Gettysburg, would have won the war. We'll come back to that in a bit. He should be remembered as perhaps the greatest unifying force after the war was over, ardent in his resolve to bring the North and South together through many means of reconciliation and imploring his soldiers to, to do their duty in becoming good citizens of the country. Fact check, that is also true. He was one of the biggest proponents of reconstruction and reconciliation after the war. Our culture is being destroyed and our history and heritage, both good and bad, are being extinguished by the radical left. And we can't let that happen! Exclamation mark. 
If only we had Robert E. Lee to command our troops in Afghanistan, that disaster would have ended in a complete and total victory many years ago. <laughs> what an embarrassment we are suffering because we don't have the genius of a Robert E. Lee exclamation mark, end quote. Thank you, President Trump. This was something that needed to be heard. Now, full disclosure, I mean, uh, Jacob, uh, feel free to talk a little bit more about this uh, since you're a little bit more well-informed than I am. But Robert E. Lee definitely, I think we are both in agreement, Robert E. Lee is not deserving of this retroactive hatred he's been given. He's basically just been painted almost like America's Hitler, basically. He's just been, you know, completely persona non grata, tear down everything and anything that is that resembles him, that memorializes him, rename everything that bears his name. And I actually recently got to go on a trip to the battlefield of Gettysburg, where I got to learn personally a lot more about General Lee's role in that battle, which of course a lot of people say was a crucial turning point in the war. And and that is there's a lot of obviously, you know, historical discussion that can be had there. But it's not just that they removed him, it's that they are replacing him. And this was just as awesome as President Trump's statement was, it was countered by maximum cringe from Ralph Northam, who put out a list of artifacts quote-unquote artifacts, they're going to be putting in a time capsule that is going to be put in that pedestal, the now empty pedestal, that will be open in 100 years. And he, oh, just the statement he put out, we'll put a link in the description in this below, a link to this in the description below. Northam said, it's time to say to the world, this is today's Virginia, not yesterday's. Wow, I never knew that. And one day, when future generations look back at this moment, God help us all, they will be able to learn about the inclusive, welcoming commonwealth that we are building together. I encourage Virginians to be part of this unique effort to tell our shared story. Quote, Governor Ralph Blackface Northam. So some of the artifacts, the, the historic, the great the great items of historic and intrinsic value that will be placed in this time capsule. An expired vial of the COVID-19 Pfizer vaccine and a CDC vaccination record card. <laughs> yeah, uh, talk about the religiosity around uh, the oh, cult yeah. of COVID. Where's, where's the, uh, the portrait of uh, Anthony Fauci depicted as the Virgin Mary? <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, quote, writing a new history, Kente cloth. Worn by the commissioners of the congressionally chartered 400 Years of African American History Commission and Ghanaian emissaries who participated in the 400th commemoration of 1619. Gee, that's a mouthful. But bottom line, can't take cloth from the 400th anniversary of the year America was really founded, according to you know, Hannah Jones or whatever her name is. A Virginia is for lovers pride pin and sticker. An LED board that says better together. Well, I mean, that's just straight partisanship. I mean, what was Hillary Clinton's slogan when she ran in 2016? Exactly. A stronger together. Well, the, it shows. Uh, was there anything else that he included? Oh, several more things. Um, <laughs> photos, uh, excuse me, photos and flyers from the Stop Asian Hate protests in May of 2021. That was so that was so significant. That was so. Oh, yeah, that that was absolutely a massive success, you know, equivalent to Black Lives Matter. A Teen Vogue article written by Zayana Bryant in July of 2021 titled, quote, Charlottesville's Robert E. Lee Monument is coming down thanks to me and black women like me, end quote. Copy of the LGBTQ Richmond walking tour. I mean, and this is not everything. There is so many more things on this list, and you guys can read the list for yourselves, but can what? you imagine just the absolute audacity that words not only going to replace this great historic monument but we're going to replace it with completely 
momentary superfluous things that no one's going to remember in a few more years. Well, I was going to mention about the the build back together or build or stronger together that he had on that um that LED light. Yeah. Better together. Better together, which is kind of a play off of Hillary Clinton's stronger together. It just shows that they're, they see this as a revolutionary coup. They see this the same way that the Bolsheviks saw the Russian Revolution. As they see this, they're taking down the monuments and statues that previous generations honored, and then they're re- replacing it with slogans, with party slogans, replacing it with party artifacts. Because all of these things, nothing that he put in there is anything that any Republican in Virginia can take pride in. There's absolutely no. nothing that they replaced the Robert E. Lee statue with that any Republican anywhere, no matter how much of a rhino they are, can look at and say, yeah, I'm proud of that, or I'm proud of my state. This is purely a partisan vendetta. This is purely a progressive partisan coup. And this is, you know, people often wonder during the Cold War, what would happen if communists ever took over in America? (laughs) Well, we're starting to see the results of that. And as we're going to see later on in this episode, this is the result of Bolshevik hard work. This is just communist hard work and dedication paying off. It took a few decades. A lot of the foot soldiers and the American communist movement are no longer around to see the results of their work. But this is what you get. You see statues removed. You see public displays of humiliation. Because what this is, I mean, when they left the statue there all that time, they allowed these radicalized, drug-addicted Bolsheviks to go around and put all their graffiti and their propaganda all over the base of the statue. They didn't do anything to stop it. The police didn't intervene. To them, this was like a cleansing it's very uh, almost uh, like it's part sexual, part religious in the way that they view America's progressive social revolution that they're trying to spearhead here. They saw that as almost like a cleansing mechanism for America to cleanse its guilt. And it, it, very, it is very medieval when you think about it, because in medieval times, if there was a traitor or someone who was against the prevailing ideology, whether it was the Catholic Church, whether it was just the divine right of kings, they would parade that person in front of thousands of spectators who would throw eggs at them, who would mock them, who would ridicule them, they'd tie them up in the town square for, and just humiliate them. And then they would put them on a rack and then they would torture them to death in front of everybody and for, in front of tens of thousands of spectators to watch and cheer. And this is kind of what they're doing with these statues. They leave the statues there to be graffitied. And then after they've been thoroughly graffitied, then they remove them, chop them up in front of everyone on live TV so everyone can cheer and, you know, the average conservative just kind of copes. And this you're seeing a lot of copes. They just ignore it. You know, they, they just don't pay any attention. They just go about their work. And they just they just keep – they just think that this is all going to blow over. Okay, once they remove it's the last – It's just a fad. It's a trend. Yeah, yeah. Once they remove the last Confederate statue, then we won't hear anything else about this. And they don't recognize because they – most conservatives haven't really studied history like their parents and grandparents did because they haven't had to. I mean, you think mm-hmm. about during the Cold War, we were threatened by nuclear power – Paying attention to ideology and philosophy and history was kind of important because your country's survival could kind of depend on it. Nowadays, conservative conservatism is just making money. It's all about making money, keeping exactly. the government out of your pocketbook. It's That's not just, about preserving traditions or you know the values upon which this country was founded or maintaining the history of our nation. It's just about whatever makes money. We talked about in the previous episode, the guest host for Mark Levin, who said, why would you protest your employer's vaccine mandates? Don't you want to make money? You know, exactly. Don't, 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 yeah. Well, you? actually, he wasn't even concerned about her making money. He was concerned about his employer, her, her employer, employer making money. Money. Yeah. But yeah, so that's what conservatism has become. And as a result, they're not – conservatives aren't mobilizing against the, the modern Bolshevik threat that we're facing because if this thing
thing is taken to its logical conclusion, it won't just be statues that they're publicly humiliating and tying up in front of crowds of you know roaring um, fanatical college students and it'll be beaten and tortured to death. It'll be human it'll beings. It'll be people. That's right. It'll be you know Trump supporters from January sixth. It'll be you know members of the former Trump administration. And that's the thing too. I, I realized this. One other item I just read in this list of the time capsule things. Photos of the June 4th, 2020 press conference announcing the removal of the Lee statue. So, A, that was over a year before the actual removal. That's how long the legal battle took. But photos from the moment where they declared, yeah, where Northam declared, yeah, we're removing it. That's even worse. You mentioned, like, medieval times and, and the Bolsheviks. You know, this is a tradition throughout history. Uh, in the Latin, it's known as uh, damnatio memori, you know, the condemnation of memory. They did it to back in, in the days of the Romans. You know, like Emperor Commodus, for example, after he was assassinated, they tried to erase his memory, you know, remove his name from carvings and destroy statues and whatnot. And of course, famously in the Soviet Union, you know, with Stalin's purges, there was the photograph of him with one officer who fell out of favor. So they redid the photo to erase the guy. So it's just Stalin him standing mm -hmm. alone by a river. When they did those, they did them for the purpose of completely erasing the memory. They didn't like Stalin didn't announce, oh, hey, you know, commemoration of I'm erasing the guy from this photo. No, it's just he's gone. The memories erased. The photos are erased. It's like he never existed. Here, it's even worse because, I mean, A, it's bad technically, but B, it's even more intimidating because they're announcing that they're erasing history and they're commemorating the erasure of history. Almost like they're rubbing it in our faces. Well, yeah, that that's, it's a national – they're trying to humiliate anyone who loves Virginia, anyone whose roots are in Virginia, who's proud of Virginia's history. And they're trying to basically tell everyone we are initiating a revolution. And there's nothing you can do about it. Not only is there nothing you can do about it, but we're going to rub it in your face if you don't like it. And this, when you think about it, a lot of people, you know, we commemorate World War II because we protected the homeland against Japanese invasion. But if Japan or Germany had conquered the United States, they would, of course, I mean, let's go even further. Well, I would say that they wouldn't have even done this. They probably would have left a lot of American statues up and tried to reappropriate their meaning for their empire. But if the Soviets had conquered us, if we had been in war with the, at war with the Soviets, they had won the Cold War and conquered us. This is what they would have done. They would have gone around. They would have torn down every single statue of Amer an American hero, and they would have replaced it with statues of Lenin, statues of Stalin, of their heroes, that uh, and, and also American communists. You would see American communist statues going up of Americans who were in the in the labor movement, stuff like that. The Rosenbergs. Oh yeah, know. they would they would have their statues, and that's what this. Well, that's what the BLM movement. That's what the modern progressive movement is trying to do. Trying to take down American statues from the past and replace it with modern heroes of their current progressive movement. So a lot of conservatives and especially independents, liberals, they'll cope with this when they see – because they're not – this thing is this isn't a liberal crusade. Liberals have been around for over – the modern sense of liberal has been around since before the Depression. The Lee statue has been up all that time. Blacks had complete control of the Richmond government for decades. They never touched the Lee statue. So when people – a lot of times Southerners will say, well, it's those Yankees. It's those damn Yankees. Or they'll say, well, it's the blacks, the blacks who are running these cities. They're wanting to take down all of our statues. But that's not true. I mean these Confederate statues existed in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, 90s. Blacks had control of the city governments all that time. Uh, so they would grumble about the statues sometimes, but they never thought to take the statues down. This is completely different. This is all of these college liberal arts college-educated white people who have been moving into these cities – buying out these downtown areas, pricing the blacks out, taking over the city government, and now they are running things. And, of course, they're implementing – they're putting what they learned in college into practice. So when liberals and independents – when liberals and kind of centrists and conservatives make the cope that, well, Lee did fight for the other side. They try to make it sound like the United States was the real America. The Confederacy was made up of a bunch of traitors, and so it's okay. We shouldn't honor traitors. But – 
when you think about treason, we th the actual definition of treason is aiding and abetting a foreign enemy, which is, again, we talked about that in the last episode with Mark Milley, like advising China, I'm going to let you know if the U.S. is about to attack you under President Trump. That's treason. Wanting to secede is, I mean, you can debate the merits of secession all you want, but we're not aiding and abetting a foreign country. It's just, I want to leave the country. Like, that's, that's exactly. different. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an academic debate about whether secession, the founders wanted secession to be legal. Interesting note, Robert E. Lee didn't even agree with secession. He was, he was yeah, adamantly against secession. And what people don't realize is that Arkansas, Tennessee, North Carolina, Virginia initially voted against secession. And it was only when Lincoln demanded that they provide troops to invade the original seven states of the Confederacy. They're like, no, we're not, we're not raising arms against our fellow Americans. If that's the way you're going to be, we're going to leave as well. And then they voted to secede. Mm -hmm. So this is the argument that, well, they all voted because uh, they voted to secede because of slavery. Well, you can make the argument that the deep South states, that slavery played a big role in that. But the four upper South states, slavery had nothing to do with it. They seceded because they weren't willing to attack the deep South. Well, and also because the Confederates, you know, those who did secede, whether it was for slavery or whatever reason, they ultimately believed they were doing what the founding fathers would have done. They believed they were honoring the founding fathers and continuing that fight, saying, oh, our fathers, you know, broke away from a, you know, tyrannical, tax-heavy British government, and now we're breaking away from a tyrannical, tax-heavy federal government. You know, again, in favor of our individual states' governments. You know, like, again, Texas was its own country first before it was a state of in the United States. So it was, they very much loved the founding fathers and the ideas in the constitution and they, they thought they were honoring them again that's up for debate whether you think they just misinterpreted the founders ideas but that is not nearly the same certainly as treasonous forces in the united states today who will shred the constitution burn the flag tear down statues of the founders and hand us over to foreign enemies like china and robert e lee purposely resigned his post in the u.s army after he was offered command of the of the northern army and turned it down he purposely resigned before he knew he was going to be asked to, to command a Confederate army because he didn't want there to be a conflict of interest. He didn't want, didn't want to, there to be any ambiguity about whether or not he was committing treason. And again, it's not like we mentioned, whenever you secede from a country, you're not committing treason. George Washington didn't commit treason against the British Empire. None of the colonials committed treason against the British Empire unless they were actually in the British military. They seceded. They were fighting for their independence, and this is the same way it was with Robert E. Lee and the others. So, but remember, the British still called them traitors. They still called them traitors, but they were technically wrong. Like they, yeah. they were not traitors. But the thing is, if George Washington had lost the war, I firmly believe we would still have statues of George Washington. The, the attitude among the colonials, eventually, they would have eventually gotten over it. They would have eventually been kind of like Canada, like part of the Commonwealth. But we would still have you know, statues of American heroes who fought for independence. And the narrative would be, well, they, uh, they, the colonials were given more rights under the British Empire thanks to their valiant efforts to fight for colonial independence. It would have been something along those lines. So the idea that, well, losers shouldn't, they don't get to have their statues. No, there's been plenty of martyrs and losers throughout history who lost the wars, but we still honor their their efforts and their legacy. So that, Like that, the Native Americans? Exactly. This is that's, <laughs> that's what's interesting. The same people who will say that we can't honor losers in the Civil War We'll want to put up. We'll want to honor the losers in the American Indian Wars. Like they lost, we won, but yet the liber the leftists don't want to get over it. They still want to honor the American Indian. Which, yeah, okay, uh, you know, I'll do respect to Geronimo, but uh, he <laughs> lost. And sure, honor his memory, but don't treat him different than Robert E. Lee. You know, don't, uh, treat them both the same as uh, as as noble noble losers in history. But this uh, this is an article the um, by Eric Foner. Eric Foner is a professor of Columbia University. He, more than anyone else, has been responsible for revising the narrative on the Civil War and Reconstruction, particularly the, uh, the, the perspective of most Americans toward Robert E. Lee and Confederate heroes. This is in the New York Times. This is from 2017. 
He writes, Reconciliation excised slavery from the central role in the story, and the struggle for emancipation was now seen as a minor feature of the war. The Lost Cause, a romanticized version of the Old South and Confederacy, gained adherence throughout the country, and who symbolized the Lost Cause more fully than Lee? This outlook was also taken up by the Southern Agrarians, a group of writers who idealized the slave South as a bastion of manly virtue in contrast to the commercialism and individualism of the industrial North. At a time when traditional values appeared to be in retreat, character Trump political outlook and character Lee had in spades. Frank Olsey, the most prominent historian among the agrarians, called Lee the soldier who walked with God. He talks about how he was honored as both North and South, with Northerners and Southerners honored Lee. Historians in the first decade of the 20th century offered scholarly legitimacy to this interpretation of the past, which justified the abrogation of the constitutional rights of Southern black citizens. At Columbia University, William Dunning and his students portrayed the granting of black suffrage during Reconstruction as a tragic mistake. The progressive historians Charles Beard and his disciples taught that politics reflected the clash of class interest, not ideological interest. And this is key. Why would why would Foner be upset about the, him emphasizing class interest as opposed to ideo- ideological differences? Uh, because in his mind, the progressive mind, everything is a clash between ideologies. It's a clash between good and evil. The Civil War, Beard wrote, should be understood as a transfer of national power from an agricultural ruling class in the South to the industrial bourgeoisie of the North, which is correct. He could tell the entire story without mentioning slavery except in a footnote because slavery kind of was a footnote in the Civil War. It was not the – like it, it, without slavery, the Civil War could have – there is a possibility it could have still happened. In the 1920s, oh, absolutely. In the 1920s and 1930s, a group of mostly southern historians known as the Revisionists went further, insisting that slavery was a benign institution that would have died out peacefully, which is true. It died out peacefully in Brazil. It died out peacefully in Puerto Rico, in Cuba. There's no reason why it wouldn't have died out peacefully in America. A bludgeoning generation of politicians had stumbled into a needless war, they write. But the true villains, as in Lee's 1856 letter, were abolitionists whose reckless agitation poisoned sectional relations. This interpretation dominated teaching throughout the country and reached a mass audience through films like The Birth of a Nation, which glorified the Klan and Gone with the Wind with its romantic depiction of slavery. The South, observers quipped, had lost the war but won the battle over history. As far as Lee was concerned, the culmination of these trends came in the publication in the 1930s of a four-volume biography by Douglas Salva Freeman, a Virginia-born journalist and historian. For decades, Freeman's hagiography would be considered the definitive account of Lee's life. That year, however, W.B. Du Bois, um, uh, actually Du Bois is how he pronounced it, published Black Reconstruction in America, a powerful challenge to the mythologies about slavery, the Civil War, and Reconstruction that historians had been, purve- per, uh, had been purveying. Du Bois identified slavery as the fundamental cause of the war and emancipation as its most profound outcome. He portrayed the abolitionists as idealistic precursors of the 20th century struggle for racial justice and reconstruction as a remarkable democratic experience. The tragedy was not that it was attempted, but that it failed. Most of all, Du Bois made clear that blacks were active participants in the era's history, not simply a problem of confronting white society. Ignored at the time by mainstream scholars, black reconstruction pointed the way to an enormous change in historical interpretation rooted in the egalitarianism of the civil rights movement in the 1960s and underpinned by the documentary record of the black experience ignored by early scholars. Today, Du Bois' insight are taken for granted by most historians, although they have not fully penetrated the national culture. In other words, um, elitist academic snobs have not yet conquered all of American culture. There's still a bunch of rubes out there who are still clinging to the antiquated Dunning School of Thought. Inevitably, this revised view of the Civil War era led to a reassessment of Lee, who Du Bois wrote elsewhere, possessed physical courage, but not the moral courage to stand up for the justice of the... 
Even Lee's military career, previously viewed as nearly flawless, underwent critical scrutiny. James McPherson's Battle Cry of Freedom, since its publication in 1988, The Standard History of the Civil War, compared Lee's single-minded focus on the war in Virginia favorably with Grant's strategic grasp of the interconnections between the Eastern and Western theaters. Now, that's justifiable because Lee never had command of the entire or all the armies of the Confederacy until the very end of the war, whereas Grant did have command of the entire armies of the Union. So it's understandable that Lee would only focus on the Virginia front. Lee's most recent biography, Michael Corda, does not deny that his subject's admirable qualities, but he makes clear that when it came to black Americans, Lee never changed. Lee was well-informed enough to know that as the, uh, the Confederate vice president, Alexander Stevens declared slavery as the great truth and the Negro is not equal to the white man, formed the cornerstone of the Confederacy. He chose to take up arms in defense of a slaveholder's republic. After the war, he could not envision an alternative to white supremacy. So Lee was actually uh, asked when he was in Mexico if he was going to fight for the Union if the South seceded, and he just uh, demurred. He said, well, I may... I'll, gladly fight for the union i have in the past but um i will also take up a musket to defend my virginia so the idea that lee went to war to fight for a slaveholders republic is just absolutely false lee himself personally abhorred slavery he, I mean, he couldn't stand slavery he saw it as a, as a political moral evil for everyone involved whites and blacks and after the war was over he rejoiced that slavery was over he said that uh, the south was going to be much better off without slavery so who is eric foner and why does he have such an interest in the civil war and reconstruction so he's a professor at Columbia University. His most popular work, Reconstruction America's Unfinished Revolution, 1863 to 1877. That is kind of the go-to for history departments if they want to point their students to a, to a uh, basic work on Reconstruction. He has won most every single prestigious history award there is to give, including the Pulitzer Prize. He has chaired the three big American history societies, including the American Historical Association, the Association of American Historians. He also led the American Philosophical Society. He graduated with a BA in history from Columbia, a BA from Oxford, and completed his PhD at Columbia in 1969. His thesis was Free Soil, Free Labor, Free Men, the Ideology of the Republican Party Before the Civil War. And that was written under the direction of the famous historian Richard Hofstadter. And it was published in 1970. So, what was his background and why did he take such a keen interest in reinterpreting and really politicizing Civil War and Reconstruction history? Because it's very obvious if you see watch any of his lectures, he sees history as not simply the study of the past. He sees it as a, um, as a revolutionary tool for the, pre for the present. He politicizes everything he writes and everything he speaks about regarding history. He's from New York City. His mother was a high school teacher and his father, Jack, was a college history professor at the City College of New York. Jack Foner was born in Brooklyn in 1910, his father, to immigrants from the Russian Empire. He had three brothers, including a twin. All three brothers became Marxists, and not just Marxists, but outright communists. His twin brother, Philip, became a Marxist labor historian, and his other two brothers became la labor union functionaries. Jack graduated from City College in New York in 1929. In 1933, he graduated with a master's in history from Columbia, where he, like his brother, studied under Alan Nevins. Alan Nevins was a instructor of American history at Columbia. He was a journalist before he went into academia who covered the presidential election of 1928. This was the first election in which a Catholic was on one of the major party's tickets, Democrat Al Smith of New York. The mostly Protestant, solid Democratic South didn't take too kindly to that, and Texas and Virginia flipped red for the first time in history. Nevins, though, was outraged at the provincialism, racial prejudice, and religious bigotry of Southerners. He especially didn't like the fact that they didn't seem to like Catholics that much. He soon gave up journalism for teaching history at Columbia University, where he took his anti-Southern biases with him. Jack joined the faculty of Baruch College, which is at the time, which was at the time called 
City College of New York. It was uh, just one of its campuses. As an instructor, he openly supported the communist side in the Spanish Civil War. He also had many fellow travelers who themselves were part of the Communist Party USA. After Hitler and Stalin signed their non-aggression pact, the U.S. passed the Smith Act. And the reason for this is because the Communist Party at the time, we think of communists as being undercover today. I think of people as being closet communists. In the 1930s, that wasn't the case. The Communist Party ran, they fielded a presidential candidate. Uh, there was, uh, I believe it was 1932, I mean every year, but even in, uh, I believe it was 1932, he actually got quite a bit of traction. And in New York City, communists were extremely prominent. In fact, they had open street brawls between communists and liberals. Communists and liberals in New York City vied for control of the city's uh, labor unions, for the city's universities, for the city's high schools. And so this is why the government had to make sure that they passed the Smith Act to make sure that they weren't, you didn't have a bunch of communists controlling the labor union, the teachers unions and brainwashing future generations of Americans in Marxism. Because at the time, it wasn't just a matter of ideology. You had the Soviet Union and they were concerned that they might be agents of Russia. In New York, the Rap Who Dare Committee investigated teachers and professors in the state suspected of teaching subversion to students. Sixty faculty members in the state were fired for having communist sympathies or being outright communist. Nearly 40 of them came from the City College of New York, where Jack taught. This had become a hotbed for radical leftist politics. Jack was one of the 40 who was dismissed. He wasn't dismissed for being a member of the Communist Party, he, although he, because he wasn't an official card-carrying member, he was dismissed for perjury. One of the complaints against him was also that he excessively emphasized the role of blacks in building America. Sound familiar? I mean, we've had, uh, it sounds like a little bit of a precursor to the 1619 Project. Yeah, yeah. I bet there's, it's a total coincidence though, right? It's a total coincidence. By the way, that, that Communist Party candidate you mentioned in 32, which was the year that FDR defeated Hoover, his name was William Edward Foster, and he was from the state of Illinois. He came in fourth place with a little over 100,000 votes, which was about 0.26% of the national vote, which is still more than a libertarian candidate. <laughs> if you remember, Philip Foner was Jack's twin. Well, Philip Foner was also dismissed during this, this Rap Kudera committee. And interestingly enough, the other two brothers of the Foners were as well. They were also working. They were employed for the City College of New York or in the school system. And all four of them lost their jobs over this uh, communist hunt for subversion. School board member S.J. Wolf, in the case of Philip, said, quote, In recommending the dismissal of Foner, I do not so because the prosecutor proved him to be a communist, but because in doing this, he also showed himself to be a liar, end quote. And this played, and this was one of the things, one of the reasons why a lot of these communists were dismissed, because they lied. They openly lied, and they had no problem with lying. Now, the reason for this, and this is one of the things that John Dewey, I don't know if you remember who that was, but he was, uh, he was kind of the father of modern education. He was a um, progressive educator. He was also a professor. He was, he was a liberal. He was on the left, but he was vehemently anti-communist. And the reason was because of the duplicitness of communists. Communists do not have a problem with lying, cheating, stealing, you know, using, uh, using words. And this is what we see among the Black Lives Matter activists, using words and distorting their meaning. So they'll use words like democracy, freedom, uh, academic, you know, academic freedom, free speech. And one of the problems with teachers, this is why communists infiltrated the teachers unions and became teachers. Because one of the Communist Party's directives was that teachers, that Marxist-Leninist analysis must be injected into every class. This, is one of, this was one of the directives of the Communist Party USA. Now, this, every class, that's not just history class, not just liberal arts, that's math class. That's science. Because science is just a social construct, right? But think of, well, think about what we're doing t today. Think about what teachers are doing today. They're claiming that 
and educators are claiming that math is racist, science is racist, English is racist, studying anything is racist. This is simply carrying on the legacy of the Communist Party, which impl- which introduced concepts and tried to what they were trying to do is they were trying to reprogram children's thinking so they would grow up to be natural communists. It's critical theory. Just literally question everything. It, question it, it, the very basis of everything you've ever thought you've known. Exactly. And completely undermining everything that their parents had ever taught them. Everything that society taught them. So every this is the, this is the thing. They wanted to implement Marxist Linus's analysis into every single class, including math. The only member to actually go to prison for this was Morris Shapps, an executive board member of the college teachers union. I mean, imagine you got a communist on the executive board of the college teachers union. He finally admitted he was a party member. He was convicted of perjury. One of his students at City College in New York, you want to get, take a guess who one of his students were? Bill uh, Ayers. <laughs> that would have been that would have been close. Uh, it was Julius Rosenberg. No. So this was these commu- like sh- communists like Shaps who were convicted of perjury, who who were sent to prison, who were fired for their jobs. The the issue wasn't that they were just communists. It wasn't the fact the fact that they had beliefs that were Marxian in nature. It was the fact that they were Marxist Leninist and that they were actually implementing Marxist Leninist doctrine in their classes. One of the injunctions of Lenin is that quote to speak the truth is a petite bourgeois habit. <laughs> to lie, on the contrary, is often justified by the lie's aim. So if you're dealing with a group of people who Part of their ideology, part of their dogma is that they believe that to speak the truth is a petite bourgeois habit and that to lie is often justified by the lie's aim. You can't work with people like that. And this is what John Dewey recognized back in the early 30s, that you simply cannot work with communists. It's not a matter of people having separate beliefs. And this is the thing that a lot of conservatives don't understand today because they don't realize that what we're experiencing in America is a direct result of these communists who were fired in 1940 from the City College of New York going underground and winning in the end because that's what's happened, as we're going to see with Eric Foner, who was Jack Foner's son. These people that were fired, these people, they didn't go away. Like, they didn't just go lay brick. They didn't just go work with their hands because they didn't know how to work. Their entire lives had revolved around Marxism. Their entire lives had been uh, involved, uh, had evolved around sitting around and reading Marx and Lenin, sitting around discussing Marx and Lenin, teaching Mar- – I mean this is the thing. Marxism for a lot of these people was their religion. They were evangelical about it. So you're not going to – people like that aren't just going to say, OK, well, it looks like we can't be Marxist in America. I guess I'm going to go be a bricklayer. No, they wrote books. In fact, Philip Foner wrote hundreds of books. His output was insane after he was fired. He literally wrote hundreds of books, hundreds of articles, was immensely influ- influential in the history of labor in the United States. And just as an example of how influential these communists became, this this was mainly spearheaded by liberals, this committee. It was mostly liberals in New York that were outing these communists. The, the narrative on this committee and these firings today is that this was a right-wing reactionary witch hunt and it was a precursor to McCarthyism. And that's that's how influential these communists have been. In the end, they won because they completely they, rewrote the history, the very history by which they were outed. Like because yes, obviously there were Republicans and right wingers who did make their careers off of outing commies, whether it was Richard Nixon or um, Joe McCarthy, but that it was started by Democrats and by liberals. But again, that too, like everything else, just gets completely written under the table. Well, yeah, because they in the end they ended up winning out because they put out work, they lectured Jack Foner after he was fired. He couldn't teach for over thirty years. And um, he was. And what's interesting is the is New York apologized to all of these teachers for firing them in the 70s. 
But it wasn't because of any new research that had come out to prove that these firings were based on false motives or they weren't actually communists or they weren't uh, agents of the Soviet Union. It was just political circumstances. The, the communists had won the day ideologically, and so New York felt political pressure to apologize for getting rid of traitors out of their midst. Again, it wasn't just a matter of them being communists. These people were active, actively promoting the ideas of the Soviet Union over the United States. They were essentially, every single one of them, traitors to the United States. In the introduction to his father's book that Jack had begun shortly after, he, uh, shortly before he passed away, Eric Foner writes, this is in uh, Jews in the American Military, he writes, quote, Most of what I have achieved as a historian I owe to the example and instruction of my father who taught that visionaries and underdogs, Tom Paine, Wendell Phillips, Eugene Debs, and W.B. Du Bois, a friend of my family, were as central to the historical process as presidents and captains of industry. At home, I learned ideas today taken for granted but then virtually unknown outside black and left-wing circles. Slavery was the fundamental cause of the Civil War and emancipation its greatest accomplishment. Reconstruction was a tragedy not because it was attempted, but because it failed. The condition of blacks was the nation's foremost domestic problem. Most importantly, Jack D. Foner believes that the president can, that the present can and must be illuminated by the study of the past. His writing and teaching on African-American history was premised on the conviction that only by confronting its troubled racial past could the United States move toward a greater degree of racial justice. That right there, to me, I can just detect from the, the language there. That's the birth, or, or at least one of the earliest examples of this idea that like, oh, did you know a black guy was the one who invented the light bulb? Like this kind of like, oh, history is really about the underdogs who are not nearly as known as the famous world leaders and stuff like that. Like that's at least that's what I take away. From so that. That, that's correct. Um, so what happened after the Civil War took over is uh, the, the Communist Party in Russia at the time was it wasn't like Stalin. Stalin just wanted to focus on Russia. He just wanted to focus on building uh, building communism from within. Lenin was in an internationalist. He wanted to influence. He wanted to spread revolution abroad. So one of the one of the complaints he had about the American Communist Party was that there weren't many blacks in the American Communist Party. Mainly limited to the Northeast, New York City, Boston. It was a lot of immigrant, white immigrant laborers, um, a lot of people who were unionized. And Lenin saw the potential in radicalizing blacks because they were an underclass. They were discriminated against. So he was like, "Why are we leaving this great potential untapped?" So he wrote to the American Communist Party and told them to start actively and aggressively recruiting blacks to be communists. And part of the way they did this was they appealed to black identitarianism. They were the only – this is one thing that a lot of leftists like Eric Foner will point out. They'll try to say, well, my father was a communist because communists at the time were the only ones who were standing up for civil rights. And because my father believed in civil rights, he had to associate with communists. He just didn't have any other choice. But that's putting the cart before the horse. Communists, the people who stood up for black rights in the 30s with the communists didn't do so because they supported black rights. They did so because they supported communism and social revolution, and blacks were simply a means to an end. They saw, just like Lenin told the American Communist Party, use blacks. They were simply using blacks, and by overemphasizing like, – Everything that you see, uh, like with Black Lives Matter, the the overemphasizing black history, claiming it was a black person that invented the light bulb, it was a black person that invented roads and trains and uh, airplanes, everything else. Every, this whole country was founded by black people. It wouldn't be Mozart's if, best works were written by a black guy. Yeah, we, we wouldn't have this prosperity if it weren't for black people. All of that has its origins in communism in the 1920s, when American white communists were desperate to grow their ranks and they saw blacks as an untapped resource, and they simply exploited that resource to the best of their ability. Now, most blacks weren't interested in communism, but the intellectual blacks were. 
And it was the intellectual blacks who, like the white communists, after their kicking out of the City College of New York, ended up going underground or founding these quote-unquote black studies programs, which, by the way, Jack Foner was the very first professor to, to found a black studies program. It was a white communist who ended up founding the Black Studies program. So this is just to give you a little insight into how Eric Foner views the world and views America. This is in the intro to his father's book on Jews and the American military. He says, he writes, quote, In every nation, versions of the past provide the raw material for nationalist ideologies and patriotic sentiments. And he points to historical interpretations of Europe, Asia, Africa to show how historians in these countries write history in a way that's nationalistic. And they write it from like if you're a Nigerian, you write a Nigeria-centric perspective on history, that type of thing. But he says historians like their counterparts elsewhere have sought to construct an intellectually plausible lineage for the nation. While until recently excluding those such as Indian tribes, African-Americans or the Spanish and French derived cultures of the Mississippi Valley – and the Trans-Mississippi West, who seemed little more than obstacles to the expansion of anglity and national greatness. Okay, I'm going to read the beginning of the first part of that sentence again. He says, American historians, like their counterparts elsewhere, have sought to construct an intellectually plausible lineage for the nation. Eric Foner does not believe that America is a nation. He doesn't believe that it's intellectually plausible. He's writing this heavy sarcasm. He doesn't believe that it's intellectually plausible to construct American history as if America is a nation like Germany, France, Russia, other countries. I mean, I'm pretty sure intellectualism has nothing to do with, you know, physical genetic hereditary heritage. Like, you know, there are ancestors, ancestors exist. People have ancestors and it's not a matter of intellectual interpretation like that right there is just total communist non-speak. Right. And he if, if he noticed, he also points out that those who did, they ended up focusing on the Anglo-Saxon trajectory of history to the exclusion of all these other groups. But these other countries do that as well. Every other country, that's that's the nature of tracing the country's history. It was Anglo-Saxons who founded America. These other groups were added to America as time went on. And so it's not, it is intellectually plausible to draw a line from the founding of George Washington to the present. But by by including this in, but he's basically setting up, he's setting the stage to accuse anyone who believes America is a nation state like any other nation state of being an Anglo-Saxon or a white supremacist. He writes, quote, My friend Gabor Borat, who grew up in communist Hungary and now directs the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College. By the way, why do we have someone who is a foreigner directing the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College? I was going to say, I I don't imagine that the Chinese would hire a, an English professor to be a professor of uh, of Chinese history. I don't think it would work like that. This just shows how ridiculous America has become. Americans have so have, have completely checked out of their own culture, their own history, and they're just they're so focused on consumerism that they're not paying any attention to the subversion that's going on in their own country. Okay, I'm sure this guy he's probably very brilliant. Yeah, you, know, you know he's, he's read his books. He probably suffered a lot under communism, but he's not a Native American. He's not uh, Civil War history. I mean, imagine if I went to Hungary and I became a, a history on Hungarian history and I ended up chairing some type of institute on Hungarian or the Hungarian independence movement of 1848. That that just that wouldn't be that wouldn't look right. It just wouldn't be. It, it's, exactly. It's just so there's something wrong with that. And I don't I mean, maybe he's a naturalized U.S. citizen, but even if he's not, there's a reason. Even if he is, there's a reason why the founders made it so that naturalized citizens cannot become president. And like you said, you know, it, it makes way more sense if it's someone who actually has a connection to that stuff. When I went to the Gettysburg battlefield, uh, I had the honor of a tour guide who actually who said his great great grandfather fought in the Union Army. So I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. as did mine. My great great grandfather fought in the Union Army. Okay, there's a guy with connection to 
the Civil War, direct familial connections. It makes sense that he is a Gettysburg battlefield uh, tour guide. Yeah, imagine going to a Civil War battlefield and the tour guide says, yeah, my, my great-great-grandfather fought with Hitler. Wait, what? Wait, wait what? a minute. <laughs> Wrong battlefield, buddy. You exactly, got to go across yeah. the Atlantic. So he writes, my friend Gabor Bord. Normandy is in, that way. My friend Gabor Bord, who grew up in communist Hungary, now directs the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College, once remarked to me, quote, I was raised in a country where we understood that most of what the government says is untrue. That's funny, I replied. I grew up in the same country. So wait, Eric Foner, hold, hold Eric Foner is comparing the United States to communist Hungary. Oh, my God. This guy is saying, I grew up in a country where we, we didn't believe that the, anything the government said was true. And he's like, okay, well, yeah, I grew up in the same country. And there's no difference between well, capitalist America and communist Hungary. Well, in one of them, you are mandated to believe that everything the government says is true, even if you don't believe it. In the United States, you know, it's like he, he he's probably referring – Fellner is probably really tongue-in-cheek referring to like Watergate. Like his Watergate is widely seen as like the moment that Americans truly lost confidence in the federal government No, forever. no, no, no. No, Fellner is talking about the narrative on history. They're both talking about the, narr the official uh, narrative on history, the nationalist narrative of history. Foner is talking about like the narrative that George Washington was a great man or Thomas Jefferson was a great American hero. It's, it goes into the critical theory. You criticize everything. Everything you're taught about American history is wrong. This is why when we were in college, I'm sure you experienced the same thing. All the, all the history professors are all leftists, not liberals. They're all, every single one of them is a hardcore leftist. And everything about American history that we were taught by our parents in an elementary school, they teach is false. Like all of the American heroes, they all had flaws. Nothing, it just ignore all their positive aspects. And that's basically what Foner is saying. Yeah, yeah, I grew up in the same country. Everything I was taught about American history is false as well. He writes, quote, history has always been and always will uh, be regularly rewritten in response to new questions. True. New information. True. New methodologies. True. But here's the kicker. And new political, social, and cultural imperatives. So, like, if communists take over your country, they are going. To, you now are facing new political, social, and cultural imperatives because now you need to rethink and rewrite history. Otherwise, you could be spending the rest of your life in the gulag. That's essentially what Eric Foner is suggesting. He's leaving the door open for a cultural revolution that will force historians to rethink and rewrite history. This this guy is so so much of a Bolshevik, and the thing is, he is the premier american historian like he is the number one historian in america right now like i even had to read i remember reading i remember that name because i remember reading textbooks by eric foner while i was in college here's another quote he writes as the work of mark nason has shown in the 1930s the communist party was the only predominant white organization to make fighting racism central to its political program du bois and paul robeson who by the way were both communists uh du bois was a marxist he didn't join the communist party he disagreed with that but he was a straight up Marx, Pan-African Marxist. Paul Robeson was a communist, a, a member of the Communist Party. But um, Eric Foner writes, Du Bois and Paul Robeson were both friends of my family. Foner's impression of what a historian's job is came from his father's activism. Jack supported the family as a freelance lecturer on history and current affairs. Eric writes, quote, listening to his lectures, I came to appreciate how present concerns can be illuminated by the study of the past, how the repression of the McCarthy era recalled the days of the Alien and Sedition Acts, how the civil rights movement needed to be viewed in light of the great struggles of white and black abolitionists, and how in the brutal suppression of the Philippine insurrection at the turn of the century could be found the antecedents of American intervention in Iran, 
Guatemala, and Vietnam. And this is what leftist neo-communist historians have done nonstop all throughout the, uh, the, the Cold War and into the present. They always use history for political ends in the present. They don't study history. See, we study history because we love our country and we want to learn about our country. Ideally, at least. They don't love their country. They hate their – they don't even believe in the concept of nation states. Exactly. They, they don't believe in the idea of a people that founded this country 400 years ago. And his previous quote about how historians tried to draw an ideologically plausible line for the existence of the American nation for or a justification for the American nation, he wants to use America as basically the um, uh, basically a lab for a lab test to destroy and break down and deconstruct all national sentiments. And to do it through race, basically. Because I remember even in college, friends of mine said, oh yeah, basically, the history, more than any other department of any you know, college you go to, history is the one that has by far been absolutely just brutalized into slavery at the altar mm -hmm. of identity politics. All history in college is these days, so at least back when I was there, and I think certainly more so today, is, okay, class, now which group of people was being oppressed by bad white people mm -hmm. during this time in history? Like, that's all it is, is who was being oppressed at what time? And what happened is, when the Soviet Union was discredited, you couldn't plausibly be a communist, an open, out-and-out -out communist in America. So instead of – they just kind of dropped the communists. They, they, he'll even criticize. Like Eric Foner will offer a few criticisms of the Soviet Union and communism. But what they did is they just took communism and they wrapped it up in new terms. It's the same stuff. Like it's the same moldy bread just – served on a different plate. It's the exact same thing. After completing his dissertation on the Free Soil Party of 1848, which, by the way, um, who's that Who's that Republican uh, consultant who was really big in the Bush era? Carl, Carl Rove. Rove. Carl Rove is a huge fan of this book. Big fan. Oh, of this I'm book. not surprised. In fact, Carl Rove sent one of his interns to go get an, uh, get an autograph from Eric Foner for that book. So after completing his dissertation on the Free Soil Party of 1848, a forerunner to the Republican Party, Foner went to Oxford to research the history of American radicalism. There he was overjoyed to find social and labor history emerging in the UK. He writes, quote, When we take for granted that history must include the history of previously neglected groups, it is difficult to recapture the sense of intellectual excitement produced by the works of E.P. Thompson, Marxist, Eric Hobsbawm, Hobsbawm, Marxist, and other British practitioners of history from below. In other words, Marxist history. Thanks to what came to be called as the new social history, which they inspired, we today have a far more complex and nuanced portrait of the American past in all its diversity and contentiousness. Now, why would we want a far more complex, nuanced portrait of American past if it breeds contentiousness? That's just a rest. That's literally just setting up for failure. At exactly. That point. I want a history that's going to that's going to produce unity. This is what every single country does with their history. Not every – yeah, there's a lot of things, a lot of heroes in French history, a lot of bad things they did that are kind of glossed over for the sake of unity. Protestants and Catholics butchered each other in the 1500s. That was eventually glossed over for, in, the, in the cause of French unity in the late 1700s and the early 1800s. That's just the way it's got to be. You can have niche historians who focus in on certain things that the heroes did and be nuanced about it, but there's a difference between patriotic nuance – and complete subversion. And complete subversion is what Eric Foner is going for here. So interestingly enough, his first job at Columbia entailed teaching the university's first course exclusively on black history. Black students walked out. They boycotted his class and they picketed outside his classroom because they wanted a black historian to teach black history. Foner writes, quote, I insisted that teaching and writing in black history should be held to the same standards as any other academic discipline. The race of the instructor is not among them. And this shows the divide between blacks who are roped into radical leftist politics and actual white leftists. Actual white leftists are, want to use black studies 
in the interest of their ideological goals. These blacks, they want their, they want to learn about black history and they want to hear it from black historians. They want their own stuff. In their minds, the radical, the purpose of the radicalism was black power. It wasn't so you could get some, uh, some white neo-Marxist historian to teach them about their history. But, you know, like most Marxists, he didn't care what they wanted. He was, he was dead set on uh, implementing his version. His next job was at City College, where Reconstruction became the centerpiece of his scholarship and teaching. So where did Foner get his reinterpretation of Reconstruction? As he tells it, when he was in the ninth grade, he challenged his teacher's, re his teacher's interpretation of Reconstruction. So she said, okay, well, if you know so much about it, you can teach it tomorrow. So oh, no. his father helped him prepare based on their friend W.B. Du Bois' view that Reconstruction was a pivotal moment in the struggle for democracy in America. And this is why Du Bois was so popular with American communists, because he tied the plight of blacks during Reconstruction to the labor movement. And he tried to make that connection. So they're like, oh, okay, well, he's not just a black nationalist. He's one of us. And so that's why Marxists like Jack Foner would embrace W.B. Du Bois' interpretation of Reconstruction. But another thing that Du Bois tried to do, and this is what Foner does, is he tries to claim that Reconstruction was a means to introduce democracy to America. So America didn't have democracy before the Civil War, or to remake democracy, which isn't true at all. All they did is they disenfranchised ex-Confederates and they enfranchised black men age 21 and over. It was They weren't trying to restructure or rebuild American democracy in any way, shape, or form. It was literally rebuilding after the Civil War. It wasn't like you know rewriting the Constitution. But in the context of the day, the 1920s and 30s, when Marxism is on the rise, labor is at the forefront of everyone's minds, it was a, it was a prime opportunity for Du Bois to get a lot of white readers by tying the past into the present and trying to force that round peg into that square hole, which is what Foner and every other Marxist tries to do with any event in history. So, I mean, a perfect example, Alexander Hamilton. Liberals are trying to reinterpret Alexander Hamilton to make him into some sort of liberal. I mean, he was one of the most reactionary members of the Founding Fathers because it's, it's the Marxist roots coming out. But and that's why they they produced that really crappy musical about him. <laughs> uh, I can't I can't I gotta disavow. That was a great musical. It's fantastic. I, I strongly disagree. I Have it. you seen it? Yes, I think it was yeah. mediocre at I best. Thought it was fantastic. During his tenure research on Reconstruction, he studied how Britain and its former colonies dealt with the issue of freed slaves. Rather than view it in racial terms, their historians viewed it in more Marxian social terms that focused on the labor relations aspect. There were two key differences, though, and he acknowledges one of them, namely that the former British Empire freed slaves weren't given universal suffrage, but also there hadn't been a war that resulted in their freedom, and they didn't find themselves now part of the victorious occupying force ruling over their former masters. He recognizes, Fona recognizes the radicalness of Reconstruction and liked it, but rather than focus on the fact that freed slaves weren't given land as a true British radical historian would have, he instead relished in the fact that they were immediately given the vote, which he describes as a truly radical experiment in interracial democracy. So they weren't lifted up economically, but they were immediately given the vote so radical Republicans could dominate the South. He sees that as just a radical, as a truly radical experiment in interracial democracy. You know, never mind that they're poor, never mind that they needed land. It's just he's going to focus on the uh, the political aspects of it. So who was Foner's mentor? Richard Hofstadter. Richard Hofstadter, who was his director of his thesis at Columbia, he was born in 1960, 1916 in Buffalo. He entered the University of Buffalo in 1933, where he majored in philosophy and minored in history. Of course, it was during the Great Depression, and Hofstadter said, quote, you had to decide in the first instance whether you were a Marxist or an American liberal. He gravitated toward the left-leaning students on campus. He read Marx and Lenin and joined the Young Communist League. He graduated in 1936, and he and his newlywed Marxist bride moved to New York City, where his wife took jobs for working for different unions. 
and then worked as a copy editor for Time magazine. Sounds like a communist couple right about today. Exactly. Uh, perfect hipsters. I mean, this is these are straight up 1930s hipsters. I wonder if they honeymooned in the Soviet Union. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me. Would not surprise me. He enrolled in at the grad. He enrolled in the graduate uh, history program at Columbia. He and his wife took a central role in the radical Marxist scene in New York City in the 1930s. In 1938, he joined Columbia University's Communist Party chapter. He told his brother-in-law, "Quote: My fundamental reason for joining is that I don't like capitalism and want to get rid of it. The party is making a very profound contribution to the radicalization of the American people." End quote. Like many American communists, Hofstadter only became disillusioned with the Soviet Union when Stalin made a pact with Hitler. Hofstadter continued to be a committed intellectual communist for the rest of his life, including when he was advising Eric Foner. Hofstadter was the leading historian in characterizing middle America as anti-intellectual. He, this, he is the guy who was the intellectual godfather of coastal elites demonizing middle America and Fly teaching over country. Yeah, yeah. Teaching middle, uh, teaching that middle America, teaching their students. And this is what's taught in college that middle Americans are a bunch of rubes. And you know and, what I mean? And especially when they get students who are from middle America, you know, like, you know, third, fourth generation Americans who finally go to college and they go, they go from, you know, Arkansas to uh, California for school and they're taught, oh yeah, you grew up in, you know, Hickland. You grew up, you know, surrounded by a bunch of hillbillies. Yeah, we're you so glad better. you got out of there. We're yeah. so glad you found, and this is what you hear from a lot of these people who leave these areas after they've been brainwashed. You'll hear them, yeah, I'm so glad I got out of South Carolina. I'm never going back there. I'm so glad I got out of Tennessee. I, I may be from Mississippi, but I swear I'm not like everyone else there. Exactly. Yeah, you hear that all the time. That's because that's what they're taught. They're taught to hate their own. This is just part of the and this is and Hofstadter was the one that really popularized that as a as a New York intellectual. He just he viewed everyone else as less than. Hofstadter considered McCarthyism to be the result of this Middle America um, provincialism, because uh, McCarthy was from Wisconsin. He saw McCarthy as the embodiment of Middle American ignorance, as the as the rubes who had, who send their people to Congress and end up stirring things up and trying to have these communist witch hunts. So basically, they you know he they get mad when someone from Middle America they keep beating Middle America over the head with oh you're a bunch of you know uneducated hillbillies you know out in the middle of nowhere they get mad when someone finally retaliates over that I mean it sounds sounds kind of like you know when Trump yeah, ran for president exactly yeah but um, Hofstadter's dissertation director Merle Curdy said that Hofstadter's quote position is as biased by his urban background as the work of older historians was biased by their rural background and traditional agrarian sympathies end quote. And uh, Hofstadter was uh, was the guy who directed Eric Foner's thesis. Eric Foner writes in that New York Times article, whatever the fate of Lee's statues and memorials, so long as the legacy of slavery continues to bedevil American society, it seems unlikely that historians will return Lee, metaphorically speaking, to his pedestal. And if you read into that, it's like, okay, so as long as the legacy of slavery continues to bedevil American society— what does that have anything to do with Robert E. Lee? And he's almost suggesting that once we fix the problems that slavery created, then historians might be interested in returning Robert E. Lee to his pedestal. Everything that Marxist historians use history for is to change the present. They're not actual historians. They're activists. They're revolutionaries. And that's why every single thing that a Marxist historian writes has to be taken with a grain of salt. Sure, they can do some good research. A lot of those labor Marxists in in um, in England that he mentioned, Eric Hobsbawm, um, who's the other guy, uh, the other Marxist historian that he uh, looked up to. I read him a lot in college because I studied oh, E. P. Thompson because um, I studied the history of England in the 1600s, and that he was a, he was huge and he put out a lot of really good work on the English Revolution. But the difference, though, between somebody like that and somebody like Eric Foner, the reason why somebody like Eric Foner is a lot more, uh, a lot more evil and a lot more dangerous to American society is because 
those labor historians, they're making common calls with the English working people. Eric Foner makes no has no interest in making any common calls with the common American working white people. He's simply interested in exasperating racial divides in America. And this is what the Communist Party did in the 1920s and 30s. Rather than trying to win over the white working class, they tried to go for black people as a whole. They tried to win over black intellectuals who they hoped would radicalize and racialize the black the underclass who would then join the Communist Party to form, to join them in a Marxist revolution. And this is why somebody like uh, like Foner is a lot more dangerous to the American body politic than an E.P. Thompson was to the U.K., because at least E.P. Thompson was writing about his own people. Um, Eric Foner is actively against his own American white people and tries to undermine them at every, ch every chance he gets and doesn't even recognize that they have a legitimate country. And this is this is... This is far different than someone who's simply a Marxist who is trying to rewrite history so that the people at the bottom of the economic scale have a voice. But, um, yeah, this is the guy uh, – this is one of the misconceptions that a lot of Southerners have when they see their, their ancestors' heroes coming down from these – you know, and being humiliated, being shot up, you know, being shot up with paint and graffiti – they assume, okay, well, it's the, it's the Yankees' fault. It's the, it's the blacks' fault. No, it's, it's communists' fault. It's communist indoctrination spearheaded by anti-American radicals like Eric Foner, who was raised in an anti-American radical home. I mean, his father and all three of his uncles were Marxists. He was trained by a Marxist. His father was a co-traveler with Marxists and ended up get, losing his job because of uh, he lied under oath as a Leninist, I mean, following in Lenin's advice, Lenin's pattern. And uh, Eric Foner has done more to drive the wedge between Americans who love American history and Americans who have joined the new progressive movement who hate American history and want to remake American society. So when we see statues coming down, when we see Americans railing against their own history and their own past, we have Eric Foner to thank for this. And until Americans actually take their own history back from usurpers like Eric Foner, none of this is ever going to change. It starts in the, it starts in the way people think about themselves and their country. And uh, just one one last thing, you know, a lot of people may think, okay, well, what difference does it make? It doesn't affect my pocketbook if I or my freedom if they want to take down a statue of Robert E. Lee. I was never going to go visit Richmond anyway. Well, the problem when Americans lose their ability to collectively to act collectively in defense of their history. They also lose their ability to act collectively in defense of individual rights because shortly after this happened, Biden announced the vaccine mandate. That's right. And, for private businesses. Right. And there's been virtually no opposition to it. I mean, the Republican Party has put up some of their politicians have put up uh, put up a fight, but there's been no mass action against this. There's been no walkouts, no strikes, not a single protest anywhere in the country against this that, uh, that I'm aware of. And if it was, it was maybe just a couple of, you know, retired people protesting who aren't in the workforce anyway. And the reason for this is because Americans have been beaten into submission. When you fail, when you're not willing to stand up for your history and your heroes and your past and defend your ancestors and defend your ethnicity, your collective nation, you're not going to stand up collectively for individual rights when individual rights are trampled on by the government. You cannot have individual rights without having first collective rights. It's yeah, it's pretty straight it's a pretty straightforward transitory process those who control the past control the present those who control the present control the future it's that simple if you rewrite the past and then ingrain that rewritten revisionist history into those alive today 
you will control the future forever. I think it was, again, it was Hitler who said, you know, give me their children and I will control their futures. And that is exactly what they are doing. And in spades, far better than anything that Hitler or Stalin could have ever hoped to achieve. That is all the time that we have left for this part two, two parts special episode of The Right Take. We hope you guys enjoyed this one. We know we sure did. Be sure to follow all of our latest content at righttakepodcast.com. Follow us on all the social media platforms and podcast platforms where we are available, righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe. Once again, we are new to the free speech alternative known as Getter. We are available there at The Right Take, so follow us on Getter, as well as Gab and Minds and Facebook, Rumble, BitChute, YouTube, and all the other platforms. And if you are feeling so generous, righttakepodcast.com slash support. We'll talk to you in the next episode, guys. 